Good morning. It's so good to be with you here today. So good to see so many faces. Um, I know you're not here because of me, but I entertained the thought. And then I had to repent. Um, The past few weeks, we've been going through a sermon series called Sojourners, How to Engage the World as Believers. In the first week, we talked about how we as children of God glorify God by doing good and doing justice in the world. The last week, we had a guest speaker who spoke about how God had given us special, unique, individual, corporate, ethnic identities. I don't really have an answer for you, and I'm sure the answer can come from one sermon. But I pray today, by God's grace, as we look at how the church in Acts dealt with these issues, that we can learn something from them. In the passage today, we're going to learn that the Holy Spirit is the person who will push us in the right direction. We need the Holy Spirit to guide the church, to create a culture. And he will give us the right heart and principle to deal with the issues of justice and brokenness today. And so, would you please open your Bibles to Acts 15? It'll be up on the screen. And I'm sorry. I changed the order of what I'm going to do. I'm annoying. All right. Uh, In Acts 15, just to give you some context before I read it, a group of Jewish believers from Judea come to the church of Antioch. So if you can just imagine it, it, imagine there is a group that comes from the Catholic Church in Rome, comes to, I don't know, Hong Kong. where so many believers are committing their lives to God, and they say this, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. What they're really saying is, unless you do it our way, God will not save you. And they, Paul and Barnabas, a team of missionary pastors, gets into a heated debate with them. And this is the background for this passage today. Acts 15. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem with the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. The news made all the brothers and sisters very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of God. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles 
might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. The God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has described to us how God had first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Let's pray. Triune God, we ask this morning that you would speak to us. That as we worship and as we are attentive to your words, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would awaken in our hearts the conviction and fire to make the glory of God great across the world. I pray that we would walk humbly with you, that we would sit silently and ask that you speak to us, that you would remind us that in Christ we are loved, forever loved, unconditionally, irrevocably loved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So. My topic this morning is how to engage culture, and I try to think, what is culture? You know, it's a word we use a lot in society. We throw it around. Um, you know, culture, if I can give you an analogy, it's really, it's really like software. It's the programming of, a, of individuals, of a community, how they're wired and programmed to have certain traits, beliefs, and values. They see themselves in a certain way, and they see people outside their communities in a certain way. And they do things in a very particular way. And honestly, I try to think of something that, that's relevant or something that I could think of pretty easily. And all I could think about was coffee. No matter where you go, the, the culture of coffee is very different. If you go to Korea, they only make espressos and Americanos. And I wondered why. I'm not sure, but as a Korean, I can say it's because Koreans are just extra. <laughs> if you go to Japan, Japanese people are known for their near-robotic, near-perfect 
exactness, their precision. When they make coffee, everything is extremely precise. If you come to Boston, they drink Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> Culture is different wherever you go. So, how does culture affect our faith? I was sitting in a missions class, and the professor wrote on the board a single question. What is biblical Christianity? I'm sure some answers are popping into your heads, as they did mine. And I was not brave enough to raise my hand. And each soul who raised their hand shared, and the professor would just smile without acknowledging what they said. <laughs> he said, next. And after an incredibly painful 10 minutes, my professor smiled, and he said, there is no such thing as biblical Christianity. I was like, what? I think this quote by uh, theologian and missionary Leslie Newbigin is extremely helpful. He's someone that Tim Keller relies on very often. And he says this, every statement of the gospel in words is conditioned by the culture of which those words are a part. And every style of life that claims to embody the truth of the gospel is a culturally conditioned style of life. There can never be a culture-free gospel. So in other words, how I express my identity as a child of God is, is colored, it's flavored, it's nuanced by what I've experienced, where I come from, what my ethnic identity is, and so on. I am saved because Jesus died on behalf of me, but I can worship in him in ways that are contextually meaningful to me. God helps make sense of my belonging and my becoming. So how do we engage the culture we're in? We have to recognize the culture of the church. And it's only from there we can create a church culture that stands apart from the world but still lives in the world. And as we read... What's going on in Acts 15 is really culture clash. These Jews from Judea have a very specific way of practicing religion. They have so for thousands of years. And these apostles, these missionaries, they say, only by grace alone can you be saved. Only faith alone in Christ. Your system your way of worshiping God, of earning your forgiveness. As Pastor Danny alluded to, they made sacrifices. This system doesn't exist anymore. To the Jew, this is scandal. Such an affront to how they've lived, how they identified as people for thousands of years. So a major meeting is called. So, what I believe we can learn from the early church today is, is that we depend on the Holy Spirit to create culture. 
And the culture, we need the Holy Spirit to help us, empower us to create as a culture of communion. Communion being the bond that ties believers together as a group and with Jesus. A culture of communion is one in which we rely on God the Holy Spirit to heal our ability to imagine a church where our identities are tied together in the cross. We must imagine a church where you and I, the essence of who we are, I identities are tied together. We're threads that are weaved together by the blood of Christ. And so to create a culture of communion, the Holy Spirit helps us in three ways. He helps us to deal with tension. He helps us to advocate for the other. And he helps us to love and respect one another's cultural expression of faith. He helps us to deal with tension. He helps us to advocate. And he helps us to love and respect one another's cultural expressions of faith. Number one, the Holy Spirit helps us to deal with conflict and tension. If you look at verse 2, it says, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute. They were fighting against false teaching. But something that we learn in this passage is that the Holy Spirit helps us to deal with conflict and tension. Because in the spirit, we completely listen to one another. Verse 4, Paul and Barnabas were welcomed by the church to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened. When they finished, James spoke up. Discussions about justice, about injustices, don't begin and end primarily with the present. They probe deeply and painfully into your past, and they dream impossibilities about the future. Discussions about justice will trigger you, especially when it seems like the finger is pointed at you. I will feel emotions that I never wanted to feel, and I will feel fragility and pain but as brothers and sisters, we still need to listen. And this is something our culture does not do well. Our culture talks, but they don't listen to one another. Have you seen recently the, the, the conversations between President Trump and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi? I'll show you how good I'm at it impersonations. <laughs> Can you figure out who they are? Sorry. <laughs> but it, that's really all it sounds like. They, they, they just talk at the same time. It's so annoying. And so easy to be like, wow, they're, they're so uncivilized. But when we have these discussions too, we become like that as well. James 1, 19 to 20, James writes, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. We have to listen completely. We have to hear someone out. 
even if you think that person is completely wrong. And we hear each other out because Christians love one another. Why do we listen? Because it's godly. And because the Holy Spirit lives in us. Galatians 5, 22 to 23, Paul writes, For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. It's the Spirit that helps us to live the gospel out, to bear one another's burdens. He's the one who produces the fruits of love, patience, that overflows into all aspects of our interactions and conversations. The Spirit helps us to deal with conflict and tension. That's number one. Number two, the Spirit helps us to advocate others to have a voice. And I wanted to ask, when's the last time you changed your opinion on something? Something that you disliked. And after your opinion changed, you began to champion it. One of my good friends, uh, I like seltzer water. And he would always, like, just criticize me. He's like, yo, you're such a yuppie. I was like, what? Everyone drinks this. It's like, no, you're a yuppie. Bougie. It's like, okay. And I remember he decided to fast soda for six months. And um, I come up to visit him at school. And we go to a gas station. And we're looking at drinks. And he's like, yo, that, that bubbly is good, man. I was like, Bubbly, that's seltzer water. Bro, you drink seltzer water now? I was like, yeah, it's good. I was like... So I stopped being his friend. And... (laughs) When's the last time you felt like you had to change your opinion on something before you began to advocate for it? And that's what we see here. The Spirit helps us to advocate for others by first, in the Spirit... We confront our biases and prejudices. Verse 7, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul. If you read the previous 14 chapters of the book of Acts, you know that these, especially Paul and Peter, were not who they were at this point in the book. In chapter 10, Peter is confronted by God to deal with his prejudices and his racism towards Gentiles. We're introduced to Paul, who's also known as Saul of Tarsus in chapter 7, who's a murderous, Gentile-hitting terrorist. Peter and Paul were both confronted by God to see their own prejudice. And God is complicating things here. Because when you consider the context of when this was written, you begin to capture the sense that maybe the Jews were justified in hating the Gentiles. Do you know how long the Jewish homeland was occupied by foreign invaders? Over 400 years. And over those 400 years, as different powers came and gone, as they ravaged their homeland, as they destroyed 
the temple as they stole and pillaged. The Jews eagerly awaited the Messiah who would come and give them justice. And in chapter 10, Peter is forced to talk to a centurion, a Roman soldier, a Roman police officer. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, it's the Romans who nailed Jesus to the cross. And if there's a modern-day equivalent, Peter saw his friend get shot by the policeman. If you talk to your grandparents, many of them probably lived through some kind of occupation and colonization. This feels much more real when we begin to consider the context. However, God complicates things because Peter and Paul are powerless when it comes to Roman society, Roman colonization, but in the church, they have the power and influence to determine what is right and what is not. And now they're in the hot seat. Without the Holy Spirit's intervention, we learn, Peter and Paul would have never become advocates for the Gentiles because the Holy Spirit changes their hearts Peter and Paul have disavowed their foreign views and stand up for Gentile people. The Holy Spirit forces the mirror to you because you need a good look at yourself. God is not only challenging your ethnic prejudices, but he's also even challenging your political biases and how you understand how this world works. So what do we learn from Peter and Paul? The journey of justice, the journey to pursue reconciliation begins very quietly. It begins in your heart. We rethink through our perception of reality, our understanding of how the world works. When you become Christian with the realization that God is real, his love for us tangible, you become aware that you don't see the whole picture how you see the world changes. And likewise, the journey of justice begins with a defragmentation of your socialized worldview. How about we've been conditioned and programmed to see this world? How have I lived in this racialized society? How have I benefited from it? Have I? Have I been conscious of my race? of my blackness, of my Asianness, of my whiteness for most of my life? Have I tried hard to fit in? Do I care? The Spirit will heal our sinful hearts, but also our diseased ability to imagine and see creation as God intended. He moves our hearts to cry out to God and forgive and seek forgiveness. And the reason we need to talk about injustice, the reason we need to talk about racism as a church is because though Europeans were responsible for the colonization and racialization of significant parts of the world, what it was fueled by, what allowed it to do these things is the church. Racism. Is the sin of the church. Injustice is the sin of the church. And we have to begin to reckon with that. 
sin in it. I'm not sure if you, I don't think a lot of you know this about me. Um, I used to be a youth pastor before I came uh, to Cornerstone. I was driving down to New York. And by the time my um, role ended there, I was fed up with Koreans. Screwing up in the Korean church, getting hurt, getting disrespected and shamed, not understanding why, I was fed up. And I was visiting churches. Um, I actually came to Cornerstone because my friend, Myung, who had interned here, invited me. And out of all the churches I visited, you know, I was thinking, you know, maybe I can become an Anglican. Maybe I can go to that Hispanic Pentecostal church. I don't want, I don't want to go to church with Koreans. And it was so bad that even at school, I didn't even want to deal with Korean people. And it's not you. It's not. But my hurts and my heart have been distorting how I viewed people. And ironically, during that two months, the only church that really stuck to my heart was Cornerstone Church. And I, was, I remember driving up to school. I was driving up the hill that leads to our campus. I was like, God, I can't deal with Koreans anymore. And this doesn't always happen. I heard an audible voice. Chris, you're the problem. You're a part of the problem. Before we advocate for others, the Holy Spirit makes us look inwards. Challenges how we've seen things. It makes us confront our prejudices. Furthermore, our background doesn't determine who we advocate for. Verse 13, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simeon, or Simon, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. A lot of your translations say Simon, but in the footnotes, it'll say Simeon, Aramaic. What's this hinting at is James is an OG Palestinian Jew. He has not culturally assimilated. And he's so Palestinian that he doesn't even refer to Peter as a name that everyone else refers to him by. He goes to his original Jewish name. Furthermore, If you read Acts and you read Galatians 2, we understand that the original party from Judea that came to stir up conflict in Antioch actually viewed James as their leader. James might not have viewed himself as their leader, but they really looked up to him because he was a stalwart, faithful, devout Jew. But as he listens... Even as he speaks, you can see how his Jewishness comes out. But what's really interesting is that he begins quoting the Old Testament. And he doesn't quote the Hebrew, Old Te- Old Hebrew Bible. What he quotes is the Greek Old Testament. And why is he doing that? He's doing that for a very specific purpose. It's because he's trying to include the Gentile people. There's a significant voice that's missing here. Where are the Gentiles? 
They're not there. But how we use language can include people. I had a friend who went to Cuba for a couple of weeks because uh, there was a program in his class that allowed it. And what shocked him was that the professors who organized that trip for almost a decade don't speak any Spanish. They just speak English to the natives. My friend was horrified. <laughs> what? It's like, they said, no, it's okay. If you keep talking at them, they're eventually going to get it. Wow. We can see how language excludes people. Something we have to confront as Cornerstone Church, you might not like what I'm about to say, is that we are not a Korean American church, but our culture is predominantly Korean American. And that's something we just have to admit and recognize. And there are some times when a majority group speaks in just Korean words, non-Korean people will feel excluded. It, can, it definitely wasn't malicious. But it's something we have to be mindful of. Language has the power to exclude. But language also has the power to include people. being mindful of what you say, but also translate it if you say it. So that, what do we learn from here? People who actually represent the other side begins to advocate for the excluded people. People who can't even really easily cross over or even understand the other culture still stands up for their culture, as we see in James. Just because the issue doesn't affect you personally doesn't mean you can't advocate for the people that it affects. So how can you learn to advocate for others? How can you learn to confront your own biases? You really have to read. Read people's histories. Read theology explained by African-Americans, Native American Christians, Haitian-Americans. They'll reveal a side to the gospel that you've never seen before. So, number one, the Spirit helps us to deal with tension and conflict. Number two, he helps us to advocate for others. And number three, he helps us to respect each other's cultures and expressions of faith. 19, is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So, wait a minute. James, you just said, let's not make it difficult for the Gentiles to believe. You just said that they don't have to become Jews. So why are you giving these instructions to them? It seems kind of backwards. But what we don't understand are two things. Number one, what he's really asking, he's asking for Gentiles not to be influenced by the pagans around them. It's to live among the pagans. 
Preach the gospel to the pagans, but don't be like the pagans. And number two, he's asking them to be respectful of Jewish people and culture. These commands are supposed to help Gentiles and Jews have table fellowship, to have meals. And what we learn is that cultures can shape and color the expression of our faith in a way that doesn't compromise the core of the gospel. So what's so important about eating together? Back in the early church, table fellowship is where communion took place. This was the Passover meal. It's a concentration of Christian community. And in the communion, which means to partake in, we as individuals become spiritually bond and tied as a group with a crucified Jesus. And it's in the spirit we participate in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His atoning sacrifice is ours, and our identity is marked by his blood. It's a family in which we repent and reflect and build a culture of communion in which we are forgiven, forgive one another, and stand in solidarity with one another. Jesus, the Son of God, becomes human to die on the cross, to experience the suffering of the world, to stand in solidarity with people who are oppressed and have no voice. The crucified Jesus is a man hanging from the lynching tree. He is the comfort woman. And in communion, we are tied together by Jesus' death and resurrection. We are not just individuals. We are his body. And the world's suffering is our suffering. We need to create a culture where you and I are tied together, mindful of one another in love. I want to just give you an encouraging note to close. We can mess up. People have this crushing pressure to get everything right. I want to find the right job. I want to get the right education. I want to live in the right place. I want to date the right person. In the book of Acts, we see the church get it constantly wrong. They refused to go to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what did God do? He brought the ends of the world to them. The apostles and the Palestinian Jews neglected their Greek brothers and sisters. So what did the Spirit do? The Spirit moved their hearts and they empowered Greek Jewish deacons like the martyr Stephen. The Spirit's work is to convict us of our sins, move us to action, and transform us to look more like Christ. And he's always living inside you, whether you mess up or not. So what does God require of you but to love mercy, do justice, and walk humbly with your God? 
In order to create a culture that's different from the world we live in, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Without the power of the gospel, there is no hope for this world. And there is no hope for the unjust crimes that are inflicted upon the marginalized. The Spirit transforms you to be like Christ by listening to people you disagree with. He helps you to advocate for others to have a voice when they have no voice. He confronts and helps you reflect on your own painful history. Embrace the tensions and pain of the world. He's the one who helps you lament, cries out, Abba, Father, in your heart. He's God present with us, living within us, and shaping not only us, but the church into the identity that God had always intended. We need his spirit to guide us to communion. If we're going to create a culture that engages the world, we have to be different from the world. We have to be humble. And we have to always let the power of the gospel impact, disrupt everything about our lives. Starting here. Starting here. Father God, we thank you so much that the Holy Spirit was sent into our hearts to help us cry out, Abba, Father. Spirit, you live within us. You are transforming us to walk with Jesus Christ, to look more like Jesus Christ. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will also make the church look more like Jesus Christ, that we will take your words seriously. Spirit, we know that we are loved by God, and I pray that we can put that into practice as we love one another. Christ, you died for us. You stand with us to do the things that we could never do. I pray that as a church, as we partake in communions in the future, as we engage with difficult topics, that we be reminded that we are one in Christ. That the blood of Christ is the one who colors everything we see. May we grace one another. May we forgive one another. And we'll walk humbly with you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.